Today we have a crazy malicious compliance story against some grave robbing estranged kids. We'll get into that in a bit, but first, since you won't trust my team, there won't be any work to show for. This is a malicious compliance story from a couple of weeks ago. Background, as I'd stated in my previous malicious compliance story, I worked for the federal government in Mexico, a job I left on May 30th this year. I'd been involved with a political movement that was created in 2011 and through which we were able to win the presidency back in 2018. This movement is now in the process to determine who will be its next presidential candidate for the 2024 election. There are five aspiring pre-candidates, of which two are the clear frontrunners. The winner will be decided by a better-placed person in five polls that'll take place between August 28th and September 3rd. On July 3rd, and due to my experience, I started to work for the campaign of who I truly believe will emerge victorious in the polls and will be the next and first female president in Mexico. In Mexico, there are 300 federal electoral districts, and I was placed in charge of one of them with the task to build a team and go on a door-to-door campaign, set to start July 10th, to ensure the results are positive come polls week. I'm a paid staffer of this campaign, but have to rely on volunteers to help carry out this task. So I spent my first week assembling my team. On July 10th, we got the APK for the app we would work on and got the team trained by the 11th, making the 12th our first field work day. For each visit we make, we first have to register the address of the home and then whether door was opened or not. If no one opens, we save that address and on to the next house. If someone opens, we go on onto our spiel and mark down on the app whether whoever opened sympathizes with our candidate or not. If they don't, we mark it and send the data. If they do, we then have to take down said person's name and phone number in order to save and send. Story, we worked three hours in the afternoon on the 12th, getting used to the app, getting our speech down to be quick and on point. The next few days till the 16th worked three hours in the morning, the hours in the afternoon each day with our most saved data info being door not opened, followed by sympathizers and, on a lower scale, people who did not sympathize either because they vote for other political parties or they favor another pre-candidate. My team and I, five in total, would each send around 75 total registers daily with around 25 to 30 of them sympathizers. Monday, July 17th, we had our first evaluation, just my state coordinator, the other seven district coordinators, and myself. There are seven federal districts in my state, and unsurprisingly, I was the only one who had presented fieldwork the week prior, as the rest had barely finished setting up their teams. So we went over just my numbers. For the district, everyone who helps me works for my assigned account, so the report is just the total. I had reported over 1,100 visits, of which 98 were counted as sympathizers, 200 were doors not opened, and over 800 marked as not sympathizers. Since I was sure we were at about 400 sympathizers, I immediately claimed that there must be a system error, but having relied solely on what I knew I did and what my team reported, the numbers were taken as true, and since there wouldn't be a national evaluation till the weekend, we had to go with that. After the meeting, I asked to talk to my boss, where I reiterated that the numbers were wrong and pleaded that he inform app support there was an error, that they should also add a counter in the app so we each know what we send. Was told to wait till national evaluation, then asked if I could come up with some mechanism, such as taking screenshots before sending, so that we know what we send. Again, was told no. When I again tried to convince the numbers were wrong, he told me to shut up and implied that my team was most likely doing the task wrong. So I did and left. 
The next day and the whole week went and did my job as usual, maybe just doing the bare minimum, except I took screenshots of everything and I asked my team to sit out. Since their work wasn't trusted, why should they be expected to do it? Sunday night my boss calls me, he says they just sent him the week's preliminary numbers, so just the totals reported by the other 7 district coordinators and mine, they were all over 1500 registers each. I was under 300. He yelled at me for phoning it in as he said, and I just told him that the next day was a national evaluation, though by region, that he should wait till then. So next morning I hop in on the video conference. We're on region 1 with another 6 states and they start going over the numbers and before going on to what the numbers meant, they were congratulating the effort made by all the teams and really good number of registers sent. How there were a few teams that didn't reach 500 and how their in the campaign was in jeopardy. That is, until the tech guy went over the numbers and even recognized that they'd had an error as the not sympathizer tally was by far the most current register. He said they were trying to see if they could extrapolate the real registers from the data but believed the error occurred when saving each visit, so it was most likely that what the teams had done the previous week was lost and they were releasing an update to the app that same day. I asked to participate and said that it was evident that my team was the only one to work the first week, revealed that a week prior in my state evaluation, I'd complained that there was an error with the app since the numbers were off that I'd asked the state coordinator to come forward with this information and was told to shut up. I went on to tell them that the 300 registers they were berating me about early in the meeting was because my state coordinator implied that my team was doing the job wrong and that I didn't want to waste my time either by doing something that would be lost and pulled up on screen the screenshot taken throughout the week, proving that of my 300 registers, 140 accounted for door not opened, 118 sympathizers and 42 not sympathizers. The national coordinator apologized to me and my team, asked my boss why he didn't listen to his team, berated the rest of the state coordinators on starting one week late, and asked the app support to add the counter. My boss also apologized to my team, and we've been working great amongst the top every week number-wise. Now, my question here, and yes, I'm going to get all conspiracy theory here, Is this a situation where the boss is just doing terrible at their job, or is this some kind of cover-up that did not work? Could this have been some kind of fraud, intentionally planned bug in the software? The pressure was put on to just ignore it and continue doing things, and OP was the only one out? I mean, it just seems really suspicious, especially when you factor in the fact that all of these people had, like, double or triple not sympathizer votes. If I'm not mistaken, this was supposed to be like a door-to-door campaign to know which people actually sympathized with the person they were working for, right? It just feels really fishy to me. I'm just surprised that when OP presented this, they didn't say OP was crazy and gaslight them and say they are the odd one out. Also, hi. I'm Steven, and if you guys enjoy awesome stories of malicious compliance, why not hit those like and subscribe buttons down below. That said, our next story is, you want his car? Take his other crap first. My partner Carl and I were friends at first, and when he lost his house due to bankruptcy, he came to live with me. He had no job, lived in poverty, on a disability pension, of which he gave his ex half, for 14 years since his wife left. In contrast, I owned my own house, had a successful business and was pretty independent. He was very handy around the house and loved puttering, talking with the neighbors, and had a great sense of humor. 
He was clean and very easy to live with. We were together for 10 years. We treated each other well, but he had no rights to anything I owned and vice versa. I stayed away from his family drama as best as I could. Carl had two adult kids, Margot, 28, and Todd, 35. The kids never visited their father, ever, and when he called them, they rarely picked up or returned his calls. If they did pick up, they brushed him off or dismissed him entirely. I felt bad for him, but what could I do? They were like that for years before I met him. They were rude and nasty people, but he loved them and couldn't understand why they didn't have time to talk to him. Carl died suddenly one evening at 58. He had been in poor health and finally his heart just gave out. Not 12 hours after he died, Margot called to ask if he had any life insurance. For a nanosecond, I thought she was concerned about my finances, handling the burial, etc. But no, she told me that according to their mother's separation agreement, he was supposed to keep life insurance on himself, and she and Todd were to be the beneficiaries. I guess he never told her that once she turned 18, he'd cancelled his life insurance because he was on disability and could not afford it. He may have tried to tell her during one of those phone calls, who knows. Later that same day, Margot called and asked if he had a will. She told me that she'd already been to a lawyer, this was the day after he died, and that because she suspected Carl didn't have a will, she would be his next of kin. She would be taking over the burial arrangements, etc., and she was the beneficiary of all of his stuff in my house, including his car, which was a used car but still newer than hers. I was pretty upset by the timing of all this, and I couldn't believe that they could be this mean and cruel so soon after he died. He was their dad and he loved them. She then told me she would be doing a walkthrough of my house to make sure I didn't miss anything of his. That was where I said, no, you won't. Margot was really ticked about my refusal to let her into the house and to take the car that same day, and conveniently forgot to tell me they were having the funeral. She didn't put it in the paper and she only told special people where it was. I found out later it was three towns away, but she did let me know repeatedly that they wanted the car and all of his stuff out of my house. I knew that once she came to take the car, she would not be back to get the rest of his stuff which she knew was nothing of any value, I would be left to get rid of a monumental amount of stuff at my expense. Cue malicious compliance. Now, dear Carl was a hoarder, and I mean that in the true sense of the word. Even if something was broken, useless, outdated, or worn out, he kept it. So he had four old-style TVs, seven giant toolboxes, eight computers, two dead barbecues, a floor-model drill press that he was going to fix, a bandsaw he found in the dump, six stereo components, none of this stuff ever worked, he was saving them all for parts, plus 198 boxes of metal parts from odd machines, trucks, cars, bulldozers, and buses that he salvaged and had collected over the years. It was all in the garage, which he thought of as his man cave. 198 very heavy boxes. Guess they were packed quite full. Plus the pride of his collection, a 60-year-old 5-ton metal lathe that Noah used to construct the ark. So, I parked his car at the very back of my two-car garage, then shoved all of the boxes of his stuff in front of it so that it was impossible to remove the car without taking everything out in front of it, including the metal lathe. It took two weeks and a lot of effort, but the garage was packed to the roof. I took a picture of the garage with the doors open. 
Margot and Todd soon started screaming to their lawyer that I was not cooperating in regards to the car. I responded that I need to see a legal document that the car was in fact legally theirs, registered into their name and properly insured, in case they drove it away. I didn't want to be held liable. I also needed to have the rest of the stuff taken away, plus I had just had my driveway paved, so they had to have proper movers come to get his stuff not just a couple of yahoos and a pickup that would damage the new driveway. They said they would after they got the car. Their lawyer screamed that I was stalling and refusing to give up the car. He even went so far as to accuse me of selling the car. I sent the picture I'd taken of the garage to my lawyer, proving that I still had the car. My lawyer said, where is it? I said, you can just barely see the roof, but it's there behind the boxes. He got a good laugh out of that. So, Margot and Todd had to hire a moving and storage company to come and collect Carl's precious stuff. The metal lathe took four men and a special small tow motor machine thing to take it away. It took all day for them to empty that garage. I asked where they were taking it. They said to a storage unit. The head mover said something to the effect that there was no way that they were going to fit in the one storage unit that they had rented. Oh well. So, in the end, the cost of the movers was $14,000. I heard this from his best friend. And who knows what the storage units cost and for how long they rented them. Perhaps they recouped some of the money they spent from selling scrap metal. Oh right, I almost forgot. They also had to pay for his funeral. Turns out, I did have an insurance policy on him that I paid for and had planned to use for his burial. But, since I wasn't told where the funeral was, I used the money to pay off my mortgage. It would have cost them nothing to be nice to the woman that looked after their dad for 10 years. I'm just left wondering what happened between Carl and his kids that left them so estranged. Was it like one of those evil mom stories where parents split up and they just sow nothing but doubt into their kids that their father was an evil awful man who caused every bad thing that happened to the entire family like how bad could he have done to the point where these kids just never wanted to talk to them never visited them hardly returned his calls i definitely feel bad for the guy at least if one thing's for sure he certainly had his man cave and his stuff at least there was like one positive I relate a lot to that too, I've had family members who are going to fix it, don't worry, and it's in a rather big pile. But with that being said, that's all the time we have for today. Now if you want to hear another absolutely awesome malicious compliance story, check out that video on the left. Or if you missed my latest video, check out that video on the right. That said, I'll see you all next time with some more stories.